Okay, there are two readings this evening, and the first one is on page eight of the Church Bibles, Genesis 6, uh, beginning at verse 5, just for uh, four verses. So uh, that's Genesis chapter 6, uh, starting at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. The second reading is taken uh, from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, and that's on page 981 in the Church Bibles. Um, so 981, Matthew 15, Verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honour their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you, know what the, um, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Jesus replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but 
eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Olaf. We have prayed as we have sung, so please do keep your Bibles open. And feel free to look at Genesis chapter 6. That's where we'll be for most of our time this evening. And those short verses that we had read, impactful ones. As we begin, I wonder what you picture in your mind when I say the word surgeon. What do you think of when you think of a surgeon? I think of my older sister, someone highly trained, very skillful, working with precision equipment and saving lives, and probably a little bit full of themselves too. That's what a surgeon is in my head. But if you'd been around in the 19th century, that is not what you'd have thought of if you thought of a surgeon. They were very different back then. Let me read from a sort of historian of science called Lindsay Fitzharris, and she describes what you would have seen if you saw a surgeon in the 19th century. She says this, The surgeon, wearing a blood-encrusted apron, rarely washed his hands or his instruments and carried with him into the theatre the unmistakable smell of rotting flesh, which those in the profession cheerfully referred to as good old hospital stink. Imagine that. What confidence would you have with that kind of surgeon? As you can imagine, they did probably as much harm as they ever did good. And with surgeons like that, people came to refer to hospitals as houses of death. Imagine. Thankfully, things have changed. At least I very much hope they've changed. My sister says they've changed. And one of the key reasons they changed is a man called Joseph Lister. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He had a breakthrough in which he discovered the use of antiseptic, changing the surgical environment and saving countless lives as he did. A great thing. But here's the thing that surprises me about Joseph Lister. His breakthrough took ages to break through. People didn't believe him at first when he told them this. And here's the really surprising thing. It was his eminent surgeon colleagues who were the hardest to convince. Why? Fitzharris continues, she says, it was difficult for many surgeons at the height of their careers to face the fact that for the past 15 or 20 years, they might have been inadvertently killing patients by allowing wounds to become infected. The issue they had was they didn't know the source of the problem. That's why they were doing such terrible damage. But when someone told them that the source of the problem might be closer to home than they wanted to know, they refused to believe it. And my prayer tonight is that we wouldn't be like those eminent surgeons. That in these words, as God takes us to the heart of the problem, we would have open ears and soft hearts to hear what he's saying and to accept it as well. We're in a series called Dusted But Not Done. And so far, if you've been with us in the past few weeks, Darren has been showing us from the book of Genesis one of the key things it wants us to know. Genesis, and particularly these early chapters, is telling us how we got here. How we got here, yes, in terms of existence, that we are made in the image of God and part of his very good creation, but also how we got here in terms of how things have gone wrong. So a few weeks ago, Genesis 3, Darren helping us see that terrible lie that we have believed 
that life to the full is found in cutting God out of the picture, leaving us cut off from him, cut off from one another, and curved in on ourselves. Then Genesis 4, we see how that belief in that lie spills out. Cain killing his brother in cold blood. If you follow on in Genesis 5, we then see the consequences, how death hangs over the human race as a result of sin. And tonight, in Genesis 6, God is taking us right to the source. There are two things God is showing us in our readings, two things for us to see. Here's the first one. God shows us our heart. He shows us that the well is poisoned. The well is poisoned. Have a look at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. You might think, okay, you don't need to be omniscient to see that. Just look at the news. Terrible crimes, cruelty and war, everyday exploitation. But God sees more. Doesn't he see the impact of human evil? He sees down to the source. And so we carry on seeing the Lord saw that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. God shows us our hearts. That's the source of the problem. And it is closer to home than any of us would like to admit. Yes, there are society-wide factors that make things worse. There are all kinds of threats that come in from outside, all kinds of structural injustices. It's good to know about those. But deeper than any of them, God is taking us right to the source. And he says it's our heart. Now, what does the Bible mean by heart? It's not talking about the physical organ. A helpful verse, you might know it, is Proverbs 4.23, which says, above all else, Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So in the Bible, the heart is the wellspring of your life. It's the loving, willing, choosing center of who you are, from which everything you do flows. That's why so often we are mysteries to ourselves. Why did I say that thing? Why did I do that again? Can't explain it. Well, as the philosopher Pascal says, that's because the heart has its reasons that reason knows nothing about. We're never as logical as we think. We're driven by desires we don't fully understand and are actually misdirected. Everything flows from the heart. And that's why humanity's deepest problem is not just the bad things we do and keep on doing, it's where they come from, the heart. And verse 5 says that so clearly, so unmissably, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart, only evil, all the time. It's what we saw in the reading from Matthew 15. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were all about hand-washing, but not, I'm sorry to say, for Joseph Lister antiseptic reasons. Maybe Jesus wouldn't have minded so much if it was that. It was because of their human traditions. They were going beyond what God had taught so they could avoid being ritually unclean, so they could position themselves close to him and further from others. And Jesus says they couldn't be more wrong. He points out the problem is not what goes in, but what comes out. If you briefly turn back to chapter 15, uh, eight, yeah, 15 and verse 18, Jesus says, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart 
come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Do you know there's moments of moral clarity where you've messed up and you know you've messed up, said that thing and you know you shouldn't have did that thing again. At moments like that, you find yourself saying, I don't know what came over me. Have you ever done that? Well, Jesus is saying nothing came over you. It came out of you, out of the heart, because the well is poisoned. And maybe as you're listening, you're thinking, this is a bit much. Maybe like me, your inner defense lawyer is already preparing the counter-arguments. Really, God? Every inclination of the thoughts of my heart? Only evil? All the time? I'm sure I tried to do good. I'm sure that can't be right. I'm sure that won't stick. But actually, Genesis 6 isn't saying that all of us are as evil as we could possibly be all the time, that all of us have done as much bad as other people or even as much as we had opportunity to do. But it is saying that for each one of us, the well is poisoned, and therefore nothing in us escapes contamination. And that raises an important possibility. If the well is poisoned, if nothing escapes contamination, then that means that I can't trust my assessment of myself and my own actions. If my heart is compromised, how can I be so sure that the good I think I do is actually good? That's why we needed to go to Matthew 15 and hear what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were not trying to go around doing evil. They thought they were good. They thought that they were pleasing God. But you see, because the source of the problem is our hearts, even when we're trying to be good, perhaps especially when we're trying to be good, what we do can flow from all kinds of compromised, mixed motives, all kind of pride and ugliness. And we can see it in the Pharisees if we spend time in the New Testament looking at them. But can we see it in ourselves? Or maybe like Lister's colleagues, this truth is so close to home, we don't really want to see it. But of course, it explains our world like nothing else. It explains me like nothing else. Why is it when presented with a choice between what I know is right and what will secure me more comfort, more money, I always choose what benefits me. Why is that? Why am I so clear about what everyone else should do for the world to run right, and so good at making exceptions to those rules for myself? Why do we act like that? Why is that all we see everywhere we look? Because the well is poisoned. And that means that we're helpless. If the well is poisoned, I can't trust my heart's assessment of things, and I can't even trust the solutions it comes up with. Trying to clean up my own act with a heart like mine is like trying to get dry using a wet towel. And just like the Pharisees, even as I think I'm doing good, I'll hear Jesus confronting me. God shows us our heart. The well is poisoned. And we need to know that. And that's why he shows it. But that's not all he shows. Second thing he shows us. God shows us his heart in these verses. God shows us his heart of justice and grace. Have a look at verse 6. The Lord regretted 
that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. God doesn't just show us our hearts, point it out and make us feel bad. That's not what he's trying to do. He shows us his heart as well because he longs for us to come to him, to know him. He's calling us back in these words just like he is all through the Bible. And we see in verse six that God's heart is deeply troubled by what he sees. He's grieved by it. This is the same word the Bible uses for the anguish of bereavement when people lose those who are close to them. We see God regrets what he sees in his creation. And it's not so much that he regrets how he made the world, but if you like, he regrets what we have made of his world. Genesis tells us that made in God's image, we have a privileged place in his design. We have a disproportionate impact on everything else. The Bible says we are woven into the fabric of things such that our wrongdoing has consequences for everyone else. And if you think of the scale of the climate crisis, can we deny it? God's heart is troubled by what he sees and he is not indifferent to it. He will act to bring a righteous judgment, which by the way is the thing we cry out for when we see our headlines full of evil, when we see the way people have treated others. He will act. And in this moment, we're getting a glimpse into his heart, his heart for justice. And you can see that in the language that's used in verse six, because it's so emotive. Verse six, look at it again. The Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. You see, God is not on our level, acting like us, regretting things like us. He's the creator. He is beyond us, beyond all that we can say about him and everything we can think about him. He's outside of time. So what are we to think when we read that he regretted? Actually, even in these words, God is stooping down to our level to show us what he's like, to show us the scale of our sin, to show us how it is a personal offense against him, to help us in these words see and feel the tragedy of being cut off from him. He's showing us a glimpse of his heart of justice. Look at it and keep looking because there's something else you'll see as well. I think it's amazing that our reading didn't finish with verse seven. Amazing that the whole Bible didn't end with verse seven. It turns out there is a but coming. Verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Yes, God sees the impact of human evil, traces it down to the source, is right to act in judgment against it, but his heart for justice is also a heart of grace. And so we see that there is favor, grace for Noah. If you glance down, you'll see that in verse nine, we're about to learn that Noah was a righteous man, but that is not where Genesis starts. The first thing, the Bible has to say about Noah is actually about God, about his grace that comes before 
anything Noah earns or deserves. Because of God's grace, despite the mess we've made of our lives, of the world, there will be hope. Hope for humanity. Hope for creation. Two things God's shown us in his word. He shows us our hearts, that the well is poisoned, and so we're left helpless when it comes to our solutions and our attempts to put it right. But God also shows us his heart of justice and grace. And that means there's hope, a hope that we can glimpse here in Genesis, but wonderfully this evening, that we can see even more clearly in the gospel. As we look on the cross and Jesus' death for us, where God's heart of justice and grace is revealed in full, so that sin is justly condemned and sinners graciously forgiven. I wonder how you feel as you hear God showing you your heart and showing you his. There is so much we could say about that. Perhaps so much you want to say to one another about that after the service over coffee. Do. But as we finish, and as we come to the Lord's table together, here's something we should say to God. And I wonder if you can say it to him. It'll come up on the screen. Just something to think through. Can you say this to him? I can't trust my heart to guide me. I need you to give me a new one. See, there are lots and lots of places where what the Bible says clashes with what our world says. But this might be the clash underlying so many of those others, including some of the questions of identity and flourishing and sin that are being publicly debated in the Church of England today. Our culture loves telling us to follow our hearts. If you've watched one, two, three Disney films, you'll have got the message. Endless aspirational adverts telling us that that is the way to flourishing. Follow your heart. But how is that working out for us? We are better connected, more technologically equipped, more scientifically informed than perhaps any culture has ever been. We are healthier, longer lived than perhaps the human race has ever been. Those are good things. I am thankful for them. But we are no more just than our ancestors, are we? No kinder, no less given to terrible selfishness, no less capable of all kinds of atrocities. Why is that? Because the source of the problem is our heart, and the well is poisoned. And so following my heart will only lead me further away from God, further apart from others, and further into the prison of the self. The well is poisoned. So when we say, or when we hear other people saying, but this is what my heart is telling me to do, we need to remember that the well is poisoned and stop drinking from it. When my heart disagrees with what God says in his word, which is going to happen all the time, I need to remember what my heart is like, that it is not a trustworthy guide. I need to repent of following my heart. That doesn't just mean repenting of the sins that I have committed, but also repenting of the sin beneath all of them, the way I've cut God out of my life 
the way I've put myself at the center. I need to repent of those sins and of the sin beneath them, and I need to trust God to give me a new heart. That's something he promises to do. You can read in Ezekiel chapter 36, he says, I will give you a new heart. And it's a promise he keeps in Jesus and through the Holy Spirit that as we trust him, he gets to work with that inside out heart transplant all of us need. So let me give you a quiet moment just to reflect on what the Lord has shown you, perhaps to ask his Holy Spirit to convict you and to invite you to say this in the quiet of your heart, I can't trust my heart to guide me. I need you to give me a new one. That's how people begin following Jesus. And it might be something tonight you want to say for the very first time. It's also how we keep going with Jesus. So whether you're saying it for the first time, or whether you're saying it again and again, this is how we should come to the Lord as we draw near to his table. Let's be still for a moment. Let's speak to him in our hearts and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Gracious Father, we can't trust our hearts to guide us. We need you to give us new ones. Thank you for the honesty of your word to show us what we're like. Thank you for your grace to show us what you're like. We pray that by your spirit, you would renew us and you would bring home to us all Jesus accomplished in his death, all that he offers to us in his risen life, that we might become more like him. We pray it in his name.